Hey, Aristo here at George Mason University. I'm here with Dr. Allie Bowes. Uh, she is a senior lecturer in sports sociology from Nottingham Trent University. Uh, and we are here discussing the article, Women, War, and Sport, the Battle of the 2019 Solheim Cup. Uh, you can find the full citation and link to the article in the, in the show notes. Uh, so Allie, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Risto. Really um, excited to be here and have a chat with you about uh, the article. The article was actually, um, I was really lucky to work with some co-authors on the article. So I'll just, uh, if you don't mind, I'll introduce those. Yeah, absolutely. So it was with uh, my PhD supervisor um, from Loughborough University, Professor Alan Berner, and um, Dr. Neve Kitching, who works at Mary Immaculate College in Ireland. So me and Neve have done quite a lot of research on women's golf and also Stuart Wiggum, Dr. Stuart Wiggum, who's at Oxford Brooks University. So the four of us kind of collaborated on this little project. Awesome. Uh, so I got to tell you, this was such a fun read for me. Uh, it was out of my normal area of reading, but I, I love this stuff in general. Uh, I think in another life, I would have been a sport historian or a sports sociologist. Uh, and in my last job, I was at Kelsey Fullerton. So I worked with, in the same department as Matt Llewellyn, John Gleaves, who you cite throughout the paper. So their work is really interesting. Um, but I digress. Um, <laughs> let's let's talk about the article. You You start off by talking about international sports and these notions of national identity and war. Um, but you focus specifically on golf being considered relatively insignificant in regards to national sentiments. So maybe we can start there and maybe you could describe the role of sports and international events in fostering a sense of nationhood. Of course I can. So um, this primar primarily stemmed from my PhD research, which was on um, kind of sport and the nation. Um, but looking at women's sport, so lots of stuff that's been written about the relationship between sport and the nation, of which there's an extensive body of literature and I'm nowhere near an expert in. Um, it kind of uses, talks about sport, but the implicit messaging around that is that it's men's sport. Mm -hmm. And I think lots of the research writing about sport and national identity is, has come from the perspective of men's sport, almost as like a given, like that's that's what the nation means. Um, there's a ton of interesting stuff in thinking about sport and the nation. Um, it's one one place in society where the nation becomes really visible um, and lots of, of scholars have written about uh, athletes as being embodiments of the nation. So it's this one place where we can see like what does being English look like or what does it feel like and often um, it looks and feels like the the typically men that represent the nation on the field of play. Mm -hmm. So it's quite like a um, interesting angle, really, to think about international sport and and how I guess embedded national identity is with with what international sport is. Um, so with that in mind, and I think that's like an important benchmark for thinking about sport, the nation, and war. Um, as we sort of move into modern society and, and the notion of war in, in, I guess, most Western societies at least, becomes a bit more abstract and a bit more tied to maybe things that we discuss at school in history as opposed to our experiences of, of everyday life, that sport becomes this place where we can see the nation, the nation makes sense to us because it's right there on our TV screens or it's on, on the national pitch. 
and as a nation as through sport they're competing against another nation so it becomes this like i guess mock war of Mm -hmm. especially if you take most of the sports that we associate especially in um the united kingdom most of the sports we associate with the nation are, are, are typically invasion games so it's football rugby um sports that have like a very inherent um the very nature of that sport is about um going into battle so to speak um so these like kind of three areas become quite intertwined um people have written about how that kind of rhetoric of war becomes really imbued in how we talk about sport um how journalists write about sport so there's lots of um discussions around um that notion of battle and um athletes as warriors becomes quite like common um i guess language and terminology to talk about athletes um and it's something that's really in one way really specific to men's sport and that's where kind of my phd research came in and and considered well where do women who compete on the international stage where do they fit in all these kind of discourses of what does it mean to be part of a nation or when when sports are going into battle on the field of play like do we have the same association when it's women's sports because the the very nature of being a warrior is inherently tied to i guess like manhood and masculinity and and can women fit into that discussion so yeah um yeah that's kind of the start point yeah and you bring up this part in uh in uh in the paper and it's about you know thinking about war paint or like painting my face the color of my country's flag and it's very aggressive and stuff so maybe can you talk about this idea of national identity and warfare through sport and how that has become this um place that values this hegemonic form of masculinity how does that affect women in sports it's an interesting question really because i think it's probably not a question that many people have asked if that makes sense Mm -hmm. um i think when people when academics and researchers and and sociologists talk about kind of sport national identity and sport there's never really been a consideration of international women's sport and what does that mean um so it, it provides this like for want of a better word like a little weird space where we don't really know a lot about where does that leave the women fundamentally um some early research by Tony Bruce. So Tony Bruce has written extensively about media coverage of women's sport. And she talks about um, how international representation and representing our nation becomes this way in which women athletes start to legitimise their um, involvement in sport. So obviously that's embedded in, in lots of kind of feminist discussions about women being seen as kind of subordinate in sport and the media coverage of women in sport being inadequate and problematic in the way um, women are covered in the media but when you add the the kind of national identity layer to it we start to see um, and and her research was around the Olympic Games you start to see oh well now we've got a visibility of female athletes <clears throat> excuse me sorry visibility of female athletes in the media um, because they're representing the nation so almost that kind of national angle gives women like a way in to go mm-hmm. hold on we're here we're playing sport and we're really good at it and we're and we're doing it for the nation mm-hmm. so that was kind of what that's kind of one angle to it i guess um and then 
stuff that relates to my PhD research. And I interviewed and spoke to women who had represented the nation in sport. And they very much um, imagine themselves as national representatives in the same way that when they play sport for the nation, that's how they're perceived. So it's like, I guess, quite a complex, like enmeshing of ideas around the, I guess, the problems of women operating in a sports space that's inherently masculine, taking part in sports typically that are are associated with masculinity. Um, But also the the national angle, like, gives them a way in at, at the same time. So... I don't know if that answers your question, Mr. <laughs> no, no, it does. And it's interesting because a lot of the past research and stuff that you've done as, you know, and other people have done in this area haven't necessarily looked at golf. So in this paper, you focus on the Solheim Cup. So yeah. um, maybe for, for those who don't follow golf, can you explain first what that is and what role does it play in the recognition of women as legitimate national representatives? Okay, of course I can. So um, the Solheim Cup is a biannual uh, professional golf tournament. Um, and it's the easy way to describe it for, for not... I'll explain why it's problematic at the same time. Um, it's the female version of the Ryder Cup. Um, mm-hmm. And I imagine lots of your listeners will know what the Ryder Cup is. So it follows the same uh, pattern. So it's 12 athletes from... Or the top 12 golfers from Europe and the top 12 golfers from America, and they compete every two years um, in Europe and then two years later in America, vice versa. And it's quite unusual as a golf tournament because typically professional golf tournaments are 72-hole stroke play tournaments. So um, the competition goes over four days and the person who plays the 72 holes in the lowest amount of shots wins the tournament. The Solheim Cup and the Ryder Cup operate slightly differently and it you play matches against each other. So a European player will play against an American player or two European players against two American players. And each hole is like a its own competition. So you might win one hole because you got the lowest score. Mm-hmm. Um, but you might lose the next one, even if... Um, you might lose the next one because the, the other player got the lower score. So then you're drawing. So it's 1-1. Mm-hmm. So it's completely different to how professional golf operates and it um, has grown into a a really significant tournament. Um, The interesting thing about it is when, when professionals play golf, often they're just playing as themselves. So there's not necessarily a national angle to it. Golf tours go uh, global. They play all over the world. uh, The same, often the same players, but just different golf courses around the world. But the Solheim Cup's interesting because there's a national angle to it. So the teams wear uniforms and there's an opening ceremony and there's flags being waved. And it's all very, very feels very much like a a team sport event. Um, The scores for each match are cumulative. So one one team, so Europe or America, win at the end of the the three-day tournament. So really different to a traditional golf tournament. Yeah, and I think... um... You know, for me, when I was reading this, I will I will be very honest. I don't follow a ton of golf, but I do know what the Ryder Cup is. And so when I saw the Solheim Cup, my ignorance was on full display there. I was like, what is the Solheim Cup? And so <laughs> and I and I see that already like there this problematic that there is so much coverage about the Ryder Cup. And to somebody who's a 
casual kind of golf follower doesn't even know that. Uh, and I and I found it fascinating the way you explained it, saying, well, this is the Solheim Cup. It's in Scotland. There's no Scottish players. There's British players, but they have just announced that they're leaving the European Union. And there's all these like different layers of this that there's you you know fans who are supporting individual players, and there's this European Union flag being flown. Where you know there's a Euro Cup in soccer or football, but everybody's playing individually. There's no real mm. other. Not that I know of, and you talked about this a little bit. Of there's no real other organization or game that plays as a Europe against one country. And I found that very interesting. Is there? Do you know of any other sports that that does that? That plays under the European banner? Um, I'm sure there is somewhere off the top of my head. No, but nothing um, super popular. And definitely not mainstream. to the no, definitely not to the level of Ryder Cup, Solheim Cup. Mm-hmm. Um, at the last Solheim Cup, there was 90,000 spectators wow. at the golf course. And and we have to think as well, golf courses are often, especially golf courses in Scotland, are like tucked away on the coast or um, difficult to get to. So it's pretty incredible that um, it drew that many spectators. And yeah, it's it it's by far that, that setup of tournaments. So Ryder Cup, Solheim Cup is by far the most obvious, um, I guess, collective european sports team that that exists yeah and we can go into more details later on but uh let me let me ask you this so i had uh shrihan lynch uh who's come on and done a podcast about feminist theory already on the podcast you look at it a little differently but maybe you can just give a brief refresher to the listeners on what critical feminist theoretic uh critical feminist theoretical approaches and and kind of explain what you did in this in this research study of course I can so we highlighted so myself and as I mentioned earlier Neve, Kitch- Neve Kitching who have done other, re- uh, other research with in relation to golf um, we've adopted a critical feminist framework a couple of times um, we think it really fits nicely with um, doing a media analysis and, and how we've approached it so the premise of or how we've undertaken kind of a how we see a critical feminist approach has been one that's that highlights the privileging of certain aspects of society for men pays attention to um how society is organized in a patriarchal way and it in terms of the kind of literature on women in sport and women in the nation as well so like a, a separate body of literature on uh women in the nation a feminist approach has often been used to help to explain that women are starting from this subordinate position. Um, obviously, there's been there's a ton of feminist theories, primarily um, something that is a real strength of the approach, as well as um, has been heavily criticised, I guess. But uh, we take critical feminism as like a... a, a I guess, a lens or a framework for us to pay attention to power structures um, where hegemonic masculinity is privileged and uh, femininity and female and, and women's position in within society and within sport is, I guess, problematized. So mm-hmm. that's been, that was our approach. So I like to think of it, and, and when I explain it to my students, like 
I talk about that as like my start point. So that's how we understand and that's how I'm starting to look at um, how well, the, the paper focuses on media coverage of the Solheim Cup. So our start point is, okay, so these are women and they're from, a, a, I guess, an underprivileged position in the in the environment of the sport media and in golf cultures and in broader sports cultures. So that's kind of like our start point and that's how we start to understand um, and be able to interpret our data, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, absolutely. And overall, basically, the I guess the methods of the study, you, you started analyzing basically media coverage over the, uh, over the time that this was announced to um, basically like a week after and you just uh, did a thematic analysis of uh, what seemed to be like a lot of media coverage from several different news sources in online and in print. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So um, we started um, about a month before the tournament. So the teams it to qualify for the Solheim Cup team takes um, it's like a two year run in and they score points for various tournaments, etc. So from when the teams are announced until when the tournament started, um, up to a week post tournament, um, we collected, we use the um, Nexus database to collect print media from British, British and Irish um, newspaper sources. So we just focused on like British print media coverage. Primarily because of what you mentioned earlier, Risto, about um, the unusual position that well, we found it quite unusual and interesting that the uh, competition was Team Europe that was going to be held in Scotland on a Scottish golf course. Um, when Scotland had uh, Great Britain, obviously, in the process of leaving the European Union, but the premise was that Scotland had voted to remain more than leave. So there was mm-hmm. all these like nuances around um like identity politics in relation to the nation that we thought would be quite interesting um which actually didn't really come out at all i think um the the politics was very much separate to the sports event in the coverage which is interesting in itself i guess but um yeah that was that was our approach and so let's talk about some of your findings you you discuss different concepts such as individual national identification national identity and then this supranational identity so could can you tell us a little bit about uh, the meaning of these concepts and what you found in the media about about them so um yeah we took the sort of key findings or the things that we found interesting about the the media reporting of the solheim cup players was those concepts of national identity uh, national identification and supranational identity so what we mean by those is or what what we found was significant around those as well was um, when female athletes are representing the sport media, when there's a national angle to their representation, um, it re- it reduces the, the problematic ways that women have been covered in the media. So mm-hmm. often we see women in or athletes in the sport media um, sexualized or trivialized or infantilized and, uh, Tony Bruce did extensive research on that. But when you throw in the national angle to it, it reduces all those problematic um, representations. So one thing um, that was really central in the reporting of the Solheim Cup was the way in which each player was often referred to by their 
country, the country that they're from. So mm-hmm. um, some of the players are from England, so they're often referred to as England's player or uh, the Dutch player or the Norwegian or things like that. Right. So even though the whole already... program is Europe against the USA, but you're still going yeah, down so... to that local or country level. Yeah, so it was it was kind of weird. It's very very rare that players were referred to as European, mm-hmm. which is probably um, demonstrative of. Sorry, that's my dog. Um, very rarely are players um, referred to as European, right. which is probably demonstrative of that European as an identity doesn't really make a lot of sense to Europeans. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think mm-hmm. many Europeans walk around going, "Hi, I'm Ali Bowes and I'm European." Um, yeah. Like it's it's not like a strong binder of people. So <clears throat> for Team Europe, the and how the players were referred to, the national angle became really important. It's quite unusual given that they were representative of a of a bigger um, body, I guess. Right. Um, so that was kind of one angle to it. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, and I think I think you're right on with this idea like I'm, I'm originally from finland i have a european union passport and the only time i like claim to be european is when my passport gets me into countries very easily and i don't have to worry yeah. about it you know and so i i totally understand that and i and i found i found the coverage that when you were talking about this of individual athletes being uh the face of the country not individually because you talked about how golf doesn't necessarily, you know, there's flags next to the person when they're playing, but it's more so it's the person. And so here you have the layer of adding, now you're the English player, but then there's Mm. another layer of now you're the English player playing for team Europe, but they're, you know, talking about it as the English player. And I, you know, I don't know when we're going to get to this point. So I'll bring this up. I, I found it, interesting when you talked about uh your analysis of having this irony of the european flag hosting a bunch of brits who are leaving the eu and the winning putt was done by a norwegian who by default is not in the european union but they're playing under the european union flag and i just found that so interesting of there's so much nuance to this and we're we're not talking about team england you know, women's football team going into the Women's World Cup and playing. We're talking about golf that doesn't have this, like, necessarily a warrior mentality. So you you bring up this sport war narrative, and it frames that women's sports, and they help position women as legitimate athletes with what you quote as warrior-like roles. So... Can you talk about this, which I found a really interesting, of this concept of national proxy warriors? What what are those, and how how does that work out? And and even in your past research that you've done. Okay, so I find the concept of national proxy warriors really interesting, um, and some of that stems from my work with Alan Berner, who obviously has written and published extensively about sport and national identity, and so a proxy warrior primarily. Uh, it is what it says it is it's like a um an example of a warrior or a, a i guess like a if we're taking it outside of the war context and, and dropping it into sport it's like a fake warrior does that make mm-hmm. sense yeah um and so this concept has been talked about when when 
we start looking at the significance of sport to national identity and we say, okay, well, sport is really significant to national identity, more so in some countries than others, but it has a international sport has this very strong national dimension. And those that then play sport on the, on the field of play, they then become warriors for the nation. Or, but they're obviously not actual warriors, so they're proxy warriors. And, and the media contribute to this in terms of those battle narratives that we talked about earlier um, and, and how they write about typically male athletes. So we, or myself and Alan in my PhD research, um, applied that notion to women athletes um, because we argue that the presence of women in international sport is being becoming increasingly more significant. More, more people are engaging with women's sport on the international stage. Um, it's getting increased media attention, etc. So we argue that, that we can start to think about those women as warriors. And something that we noticed in the media coverage of the Solheim Cup, which is interesting in two ways, was that um, the how the media reported on the Solheim Cup very much fit with this kind of like battle narrative, mm -hmm. which I didn't really expect to find because golf's not inherently right. um, like a battle. Like you, you'd never think of people going to a golf course to play golf and saying, oh, they're going to do battle down the 18 holes. Like it doesn't make a lot of sense. There's no physical body contact. There's no last-ditch tackles on the line or or anything like that. So it was interesting in, in one regard because... It almost didn't make any sense that this golf golf tournament could be a battle. Um, but then when you throw in that layer of they're doing it for a bigger cause, so they're not competing. Those 12 players are not competing for their own personal prestige and success, but they're competing on behalf of a continent for the European team and, mm -hmm. and for the United States of America. Yeah. Then it becomes easier to kind of layer in that, okay, well, maybe it does become a battle. And that was something that, we saw in the coverage um and it, it some things we found in in the paper was that the the word battle was used um loads of the word war was used which seems again like pretty unusual for a golf tournament the hunting um, which, grounds you know like, yeah like it, it's yeah. kind of weird isn't it when mm -hmm. you think oh hold on they're talking about a golf tournament yeah. so um we argue that that battle framing um or using that kind of proxy warrior narrative on female athletes is a like is possible because in a golf setting is possible because of that national angle to the, the tournament um, and the team angle to the tournament, but also contributes to maybe thinking about women athletes in in a more legitimate way that they are they can be representative in a sporting sense of the nation and, and that the nation and or sport isn't just this kind of male preserve so yeah. that's a couple of couple of things interesting about that yeah I think, and, anyway. and that warrior like role that national proxy warrior made me think back um i was very very fortunate to be able to see the lions play the all blacks in um in new zealand in 06 uh and you see the the new zealand players doing the haka and you think about warrior like if you think about looking at that and to start off the game and it it has this and that's like the ultimate extreme which you go into rugby that is a very you know traditionally male dominated masculine kind of you know uh, sport um and then you compare it to something like 
like golf. And it made me it made me think back of some of the work from the people at Cal State Fullerton who've looked at, you know, the U.S. sending sports stars to the East during the Cold War as these, mm. di- uh, you know, sports diplomacy and this idea of like, hey, this is the U.S. We're sending all these people. You can see how good we are. And then there's all these battles going back and forth. And it's so interesting to me to see this as a European piece. Like, it it hasn't, you know, like we talked about, Europe hasn't had this, you know, solidification of like everybody's coming underneath that one banner. But yeah. with things like this, with the Ryder Cup, with the Solheim Cup, with different um, sports playing under that banner, I think it's really interesting. And I, you know, maybe we're in the begin, beginning phases of this kind of sports diplomacy and it's starting through golf, you know. Um, yeah. Speaking from a very naive kind of uh, armchair, like American armchair quarterback over here. Uh, but let no, me... I think go ahead. I think you raise a really interesting point. I think that whole the all black hacker is like the if you were going to say to someone, okay, imagine um, the most warrior like example from international sport. I guarantee most people would say the New Zealand hacker. It makes so much sense from like that battle narrative but also is so obviously embedded with like a national identity but also the complexities of national identity as well um in terms of its origins and 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 what it represents so i think it makes complete sense that that's the vision of i don't know international sporting battles yeah. which it would be for most people and then you take those ideas and you and you drop them into a sport like golf and and I think it is an interesting like I guess nuance to thinking about a, a sport in a different way or or starting to understand the significance of certain tournaments or certain events in in potentially what they can achieve mm-hmm. and I think the the obvious embodiment of you, of being european yeah um you just don't see that anywhere else. And I think if for people that are Solheim Cup fans or Ryder Cup fans, like it makes real sense when you're watching the Ryder Cup or the Solheim Cup to feel European, like, because yeah. you're watching it and it's there and there's the flags and the colours and faces that you recognise and it's all like, well, pre-COVID fans everywhere yeah. and flags yeah. waving and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it is like a... Uh, an, an unusual space for for golf to be having these like kind of national or warrior like discussions, yeah, I guess. Absolutely. So, in starting to kind of wrap this up, uh, I want to get to the role of the media. Um, your research marks the shift away from the sexualized and feminized conceptions of women in sports. Uh, considering that women play a key role in national struggles, both in this ideological reproduction of this collectivity and actively as participants, what do you see the role of the media in covering women in sports and walking away from this gendered coverage? Is it happening? That's a big question, isn't it? I know, that's um, why I cut that as the last question. <laughs> <laughs> How long have we got? Um, we got time. So... I guess that there has been um, certain research studies, my my research included, that have pointed to more positive representation of female athletes 
in the sport media. Um, and by positive, I don't necessarily like putting val- like a positive or negative value onto um, things that we're looking at sociologically, I guess. But typically we're seeing, um, and often it's around these kind of national sports events, which continues to be interesting. But typically we're seeing less use of like sexualized language, less use. I think a common strategy is what Tony Bruce has called ambivalence, which has been like reporting on women's sport, but also retaining an an aspect of it around a bit more like popular discussion. Like it's, we're go- we're going to write about the fact that women are playing sport, but also did you know that um, this one's boyfriend might play in the NFL or something mm-hmm. like that? So <clears throat> it's like countering or juxtapositioning like a, a useful piece of information about women's sports performance with something really irrelevant or um, off topic, I guess. So um, research has shown that we're moving away from that, that female athletes are less likely to be sexualized, less likely to be feminized, less likely to have an emphasis placed on their boyfriends, but it's by no means, um, I guess, plain sailing or obvious. I think there's certain news outlets. I think that, the social media landscape has been amazing for women's sport in terms of getting information out, but also uh, really problematic as well. Mm -hmm. I think female athletes and people writing about women's sport get a a ton of abuse and and people have covered this extensively. So it's by no means like a perfect science or this nice, neat, straight line in, in the right direction because it's just not, not the way the world works really. But um, I think, there's there's so much more to be done about media coverage and women's sport, which might seem for anyone listening to this who um, is interested in this area of research or is doing their own research into it. You might think, oh, there's loads written about it. We know loads about the fact that women aren't covered in the media that much. But I think um, there's scope to do a much more like complex and detailed kind of analysis of the coverage of women's sport. So things that I encourage my or I have been encouraging my students to to study in terms of undergrad and master's students um has been around looking at okay so we've got like it seems like a lot of media coverage of the Solheim Cup and and you said Risto there's lots of coverage and I, I was able to draw on lots of newspaper articles but what does that look like when it's the Ryder Cup or what would that look like if the Solheim Cup was com- going at the same time as mm. let's say the English Premier League. So mm-hmm. where do women fit within the sporting landscape when that happens? Or we might have um, increasing visibility in, in social media spaces, but actually what does mainstream sport media look like? One of my students recently is is doing like a social media analysis of um, like Instagram accounts, like mainstream sport Instagram accounts and mm-hmm. found that, the the number thrown around for media coverage of women's sport is between like four and ten percent of sport coverage focuses on women's sport. Yeah. But this one particular case study that my students looking at is talking like one percent of social media posts from certain mainstream sport broadcasters focus on women's sport, wow. not men's sport. So wow. it's almost like the availability of information and the accessibility has increased, but that's also increased for coverage of men's sport mm-hmm. and it's not actually like becoming more paritable. Yeah. So the, yeah, there's lots to be done. There's a ton of positive stuff. Um, yeah. And, and we haven't even like scratched the surface or even discussed 
this idea of women uh, merging into traditional men's spaces like being a NBA coach or being an NFL mm. coach as a as a female who typically have not been hired, who is, you know, in American baseball hiring a general manager or someone like that from a female perspective or uh, like a female like lived experience. And and we had the, the Super Bowl here uh, by the time this airs a couple weeks ago. Uh, and it was interesting because it, there was a female uh, referee and it was the first time a female referee was, um, you know, refereeing a, a Super Bowl. And the announcer kind of, it, to me, it felt like he was kind of tripping over his words, trying to say the right thing. And he was like, oh, this is so great for the NFL. And this is so great for the sport. And, uh, you know, and, and she's really talented also. And the way that sounded to me was like, well, of course she's talented. She got picked to the Super Bowl, but you had to kind of like give a caveat of like, oh, but she's really talented also. And I think that those, mm. certain, like all of those kinds of conversations are still happening and it's way different because we're talking about, you can count on like one hand, the number of women at elite level men's dominated leagues, Major League Baseball, NFL, you know, you know, other other sports, NHL, that have high profile women coaches or women referees. And I feel like that's, we haven't even discussed that. And that's not what this paper is about. But there's so much more, like you said, to to do. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think um, kind of aligned with the media coverage angle of things. Um, and again, to like refer back to some of mine and Neve's other research on media coverage of women in golf there's often and you see this and you kind of spot it when you when you watch women's sport on tv or follow it on the news or whatever there's like a an expectation that to get media coverage or to be visible in the media for women they have to be really successful mm -hmm. and then they have to continue to be successful because at any moment that could be taken away like if um someone on a, a big game makes a mistake often it's pointed out in terms of like women's soccer goalies um that if they make a mistake it's just proof that women aren't as good as men why are we watching it we should be having men's sport on or, or that's mm -hmm. the reason why women's sport isn't on tv or in the media or whatever so the feels like women all women athletes i'm speaking very generally here obviously but yeah. women athletes always have quite a lot to lose so when they get into um these high profile positions of um, maybe featured on mainstream TV or whatever um, that should any of them mess up, that's going to like have a massive problem or an impact on the expectation of female athletes more broadly. Yeah. Um, and without one to sound like an old school feminist, like Billie Jean King spoke about this when she um, had the tennis match against Bobby Riggs. And, and I think that sentiment still rings true today that, women have like typically women have to prove themselves first to be kind of to warrant being in this in this male space and I think like your comments about the NFL broadcaster talking about the the um the referee female referee that that's just further evidence of he's almost justifying like her position is there because she's really good mm -hmm. as opposed to the, that just being the assumption that she's there because she's good so yeah. 
yeah, there's lots of like nuances to it and a ton of, you know, more smarter people than me, I guess, to to talk about these things as well. But yeah. um, that's, the, I guess, the premise and root of some of the stuff that I look at. Absolutely. And we'll have you on another podcast to uh, to discuss that topic. But um, I want to thank you so much for joining Perfect. us today. I um, I really, really enjoyed this read. I sent it to my colleague, Dominic Banville, who's an avid golfer, uh, to read as well. Um, and I, I like that this pushed me out of the traditional PE reading, but you know, there's so much overlap with that area of curriculum being written as nationalistic and about all of these reasons mm. why we even have physical education in general. But um, for, for those of you who want to read the article, you can check out the citation in the comment section. Um, I want to thank Alba Rodriguez for help in producing the podcast. Um, and Ali, thank you so much. We, uh, I really appreciate you coming on. No, it's been an absolute pleasure with today. Thank you for uh, such a wonderful conversation. Awesome. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Bye. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also gonna get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.